Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Dan Barber. Dan, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me, Josh. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to read your bio for people who don't know about you. Uh, you are the chef of Blue Hill, I guess a Manhattan restaurant right around the corner from me in the West Village. But I think you're not formally there as a chef, but you also do Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is north of here, located in the nonprofit farm and education center at Stone Barns. Just to correct my bio, since I, I have the ability to do that now that it's being read live. I am the chef of Blue Hill in New York. It's right now called Family Meal, which is a pop-up that we're doing within our own four walls. It's a very informal interpretation of Blue Hill's food. But yes, I am the chef. Now I have to read more about that. And I'll just continue a bit more that you, you've appeared in the New York Times, along with many other publications, multiple James Beard Awards, including Best Chef New York City and Country's Outstanding Chef. You're named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the world. You've written in the New York Times, Gourmet, The Nation's Sever, did I say that right? Food and Wine. Barack Obama appointed you to serve on the President's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. You're on the advisory board of Harvard Medical School Center for Health and Global Environment. I've been on Netflix. And this is not the first time we've been, well, we're not in the same room now, but I've been in the same room with you where I saw you speak at um, an organization called Food Tank. And I was actually there with my sister, who also lives in New York, and she works with Grow NYC on a lot of farmers markets issues and trying to get them into other areas and getting making them more accessible. And I would love to hear both a lot of your origin story, but some about honey nut squash, about wheat and soil. And we've talked a bit about working with the city. I think the place to start would be a bit of your background that's not in the bio of did you know that you were always going to be a chef? I well, no, I, I did not know that I was going to be a chef. I was cooked coming out of college. I cooked in college for a little extra money. And I cooked coming out of college because I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So I, I was actually baking bread after college and figuring out as one tends to do when they turn 20, 21 and 22, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And so I was taking some time to do something I knew how to do, like cook, uh, and found myself uh, in Los Angeles baking with a woman by the name of Nancy Silverton, who was an amazing baker, and and ended up continuing to cook and learn, and then eventually go to France, where I got very serious about cooking. And the rest is uh, rooted in um, the typical questions one asks about one's life and one's trajectory. You don't really know how things got to where they are, but here I am, uh, now a full-fledged chef. I feel like a lot of, I was just actually talking with Douglas McMaster yesterday, whose book about him getting started refers to you. And and it feels like you've been an inspiration to him. He also had a kind of roundabout way of reaching it. Uh, He, I feel like his world in your world better than I do, but I feel like he's a world famous chef now. And he was also struggling to figure out what to do and, and finding issues with the food system. I, I know Doug, Doug McMaster is a very talented chef. In England, I don't know him well, and it's nice to hear that I was an inspiration for him. He's one of the great chefs out there now. Very nice to hear that. Is there, is there a lot of apprenticeship? I feel like the people, when I hear chefs, they talk about, I trained under so-and-so, and I apologize if this is a simple question from the outside. But I feel like it's the people that I know seem to have gone through a roundabout way. They didn't go through, I got a PhD in physics. You, you, there's one way to do that. You go through, you get good grades in college, and you go to graduate school and so forth. Maybe a long time ago, there was an Einstein who could 
be a patent clerk for a little while. Yeah. I don't think that would happen that much these days anymore. What couldn't happen anymore? Sorry. Oh, in physics, I don't think you could take time off and, and or yeah. come at it through an interesting way. Yeah. When I was when I was coming into the business, there wasn't really one door in. So, you know, the old apprentice paradigm that enabled cooks to become chefs or enabled cooks to become better cooks was still very much in place when I was coming up the ranks. And so I took advantage of that in, in Paris and around France. Today, most people go to a culinary school like CIA. I didn't want to, I had, I would, I was more interested in learning in the trenches. And I also wasn't that committed to becoming a chef. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Going to a formal school for two years seemed silly for me. I'm reading some passion in here. That's not, it sounds like it's coming from the food or, or the practice or the community that I, something drove you. Am I hearing that right? Fear of failure drove me, but I don't, know. I don't not going to CIA was or a, a traditional culinary multi-year program was just based on my not wanting to commit to the profession. But in terms of what drives me or drove me then and still drives me today is probably fear of failure. I just, the sense of, and this happens in cooking nightly is that there's this tension where you get into situations. I'd say nightly, it's really hourly where your kitchen can really start to uh, resemble chaos and can start to function in a very strange way that can resemble the Titanic. And that of all restaurants who of any restaurant that is attempting to push uh, themselves very hard and do new things and do things differently. This is what is part of the baking the cake, as they say. And I guess I am attracted to that a bit. And within that is this fear that we really will sink. I don't know what that means exactly in the, in the parlance of uh, a daily service, but I'm constantly in fear that I will become that the service itself of the evening will tumble into something that doesn't resemble a restaurant. This is what keeps me both agitated and energized. I'm, I'm trying to picture, what I'm picturing is a hot room with lots of people, not a lot of space, sharp objects, things that can burn you. And then how, the only thing you can let leave has to be beautiful plates. And can you, is it too personal to ask for an example or a story of what might feel like the ship has hit an iceberg? It's in my, in the restaurant, we don't have any menus. So we're not ordering. We design the menu based on the table. We have a kind of running playlist of dishes that we're doing, but we we're using whole animals. We're using uh, the whole, the entire farm. So we have very limited amounts of certain uh, varieties of vegetables, let's say and to run a menu that someone can order off of doesn't really do service to the to the agricultural and ecological principles that we really believe in, which is to support farmers at every turn. And that's not just about buying what we want to fulfill a menu. It's about buying what's needed to be bought. And so we look at our own Stone Barns farm. We look at Blue Hill farm, which is the dairy farm. That's my family farm. And we look at the other 60 or so farms that we work with and come up with a, a broad playlist for the month or for, for the season, but it's very broad and we run dishes often each night that are very new and are dependent on a very short supply of limited 
vegetables or different parts of an animal. And this just causes tension. If you work in a restaurant and Blue Hill, New York is, is more a kind of restaurant that has a set menu that doesn't rely on that kind of improvisation. And it's the improvisation that gets you both into trouble, but it also puts you back against the wall. And as the great chef David Boulay once told me when I was a cook for him, if your back's not against the wall, you're not really creating. And I've adopted that strategy. And as I said, it's a stressful one, but it, it often leads to great things as well as the fear that things won't go well. Most of what you just said sounded like it was talking about fear and was talking about the challenges, but there are a couple of things that sounded like what, if I read you right and of yourself better than I do, it seems like the, there's a creative element of that. When you said back to the wall, that means you come out with something and I'm also hearing is the passion for the farm, the passion for a different system than we're used to. And I'm probably oversimplifying, but it sounds like there's all of the uh, suffering. I don't know. You didn't describe suffering, but the challenges sound like that's the gauntlet or the crucible, but there's something really pushing you or pulling you. Am I right that there's something really, how do I put it? Cause it's hard not to think of myself as I, I'm of, once I got a taste of cooking from scratch and, and going to the farmer's market and, and wanting what's there, not what's, and, and looking for the things that I don't know to find out, it's such a different world. And I'm just dipping my toe in the water. Do I read mm. right that there's something really different than just being a great chef? Being a great chef is enough. The imperative that we have is to support a kind of landscape that we want to eat in in the future. So much of what we talk about when it comes to sustainability and, and regenerative farming and all the kind of buzzwords of, of good stewardship when it comes to agriculture is about making agriculture less bad. Buying local is better than buying from far away. Buying organic is better than buying uh, conventional and so forth. What we're attempting to do, and, and it's a question that is, is a kind of takes a lifetime to answer, is can you create a cuisine, a pattern of eating that supports a landscape that truly improves the ecological functioning of it? Farm to table in and of itself, you're going to the farmer's market right now and buying potatoes and parsnips and, uh, and carrots that are at the Union Square Farmer's Market is definitely a better purchase than buying from Walmart in terms of supporting a, a local and regional farming system. But it's not the only thing that's needed. What's really needed is, is a look at how we can support the nose to tail of an entire ecosystem. So let me explain what that means. I Many years ago, I went to a guy by the name of Klaus Martens uh, grain farm, a grain farm in Western New York, uh, in Penyan, New York. And I was there because I had become quite well known for uh, baking bread with local grains. This was, this was going back 15 or almost 20 years ago when very few people were doing that. And I wanted to write about the recipe for how Klaus Martens uh, grew this amazing wheat called Emmer. It's an old biblical wheat. And so I, I thought, maybe even a, a book, a farm-to-table book uh, about, that started with grains and this jaw-droppingly delicious emmer wheat that we served as this bread that it, I'd become well-known for. So I went to the farm and I looked around. I was standing in the middle of 1,500 acres. And what I saw was shocking. I didn't see much wheat. I saw a little bit of wheat, but mainly I saw 
rotational crops like barley and rye and millet. And I saw a lot of, besides barley and rye, I saw a lot of leguminous crops, so soybeans, but I also saw kidney beans and a whole host of other beans. I saw cover crops, just a carpet of green of alfalfa and uh, other crops that were there to protect the soil and rejuvenate the soil. And and I saw leguminous crops. So I saw them all. What I was struck by was that for a farm that was that I had thought really just grew wheat, actually grew a, a myriad of other crops in this like meticulously timed rotation around the farm. Klaus was growing all these other crops, not to make money on them because there was very little market. There is a very little market for rye and barley uh, and, and buckwheat, but he was growing them so that his soil could be filled with the kind of fertility that's needed to grow a crop like wheat. It turns out that wheat's actually a very expensive crop from a soil perspective. It takes a lot of fertility to grow wheat. Part of the reason that we love crops that take a lot of fertility is they they often correspond to having a lot of flavor. And for Klaus to get that emmer in the condition that I had become so celebrated, he had to grow a whole host of diversity and time how that was planted. Where did those crops go? They went mostly into bag feed for animals because we don't eat barley and rye and buckwheat. Animals do. And so organic farmers are forced to grow that kind of diversity because they can't spray problems away. They can't use chemical fertilizers and they don't just sit there and compost 2000 acres. What you need to do is rotate a whole host families of different grains, broadleaves, brassicas, cover crops. And within that diversity, you're not only breaking up disease cycles, but you're planting the fertility that you need for the expensive crops like wheat. But what was I doing? I was just supporting a tiny piece of the agricultural pie. So I was a farm to table chef. I was buying local wheat. I was actually an exemplar of farm to table grain regional economy for you know, from the chef's perspective. But I was supporting just a tiny slice of the farm. And the wheat, by the way, another way of saying what I'm saying is that farm to table is very elitist. You're supporting the one percenters because look, the reason the wheat organic wheat is so expensive is because everything else that's needed to be grown to get you the wheat doesn't have a market. It's thrown into bag feed for animals, pennies on the dollar. If we actually ate the buckwheat, the barley, the rye, leguminous crops, the brassica crops, and even the cover crops, we would democratize the, the ecosystem, the landscape, and therefore bring a price parity to really everything. And part of the frustrations of these buzzwords of like organic or regenerative is they allow you to treat a farm like Klaus's like a supermarket. I get to choose the wheat. This is me. I'm, I'm pointing the finger at me just not that many years ago. I was just choosing the wheat. Well, that's a very uh, elitist and a very short-sighted way to be a sustainable restaurant. A truly regenerative restaurant and menu and diet is supporting the whole ecosystem. Committed myself to buying as much of those rotational crops, the buckwheats, the rye, and the millets, and et cetera, as I did the wheat moving forward. So today, I have a great relationship with Klaus with many other farmers that I buy the entirety of their landscape and, and, and figure out a way for me to make those grains a coveted, delicious, and as popular as my, as, as popular as that emmer wheat bread.
I will say that is not a tall task. I've mentioned grains that are absolutely delicious in every culture and every cuisine around the world. And they figured out through thousands of years how to both grow them in support of main crops like wheat, if you're in the Western hemisphere, or rice, if you're in Eastern part of the the world, or in the global South, corn is the ruler. But for each of those three distinct crops, wheat, corn, and, and rice, which make up a majority of the world's diets, supporting crops are necessary throughout the world, which is why we think of Mexican cuisine as, you know, corn and masa, but Mexican cuisine is as much beans as it is corn and masa. You don't get the corn without the beans because the beans provide the nitrogen to grow the corn. In Japan, you have white rice, but in order to grow white rice, one of the great rotation crops is buckwheat. So, you know, the Japanese created soba noodles Uh, in part, because if you're going to have rice twice a day as part of your diet, you have to eat it too, or you have to eat buckwheat. And so you don't wag your finger and say, you better eat buckwheat because that's a sustainable thing to do. You create soba noodles and soba noodles are part of what it means to be Japanese as much as rice or anything else is. That to me is a fascinating correspondence of culture and ecology. And by the way, Western culture, which is Western civilization, which is primarily wheat, also has its rotation crops, barley into wheat, beer into bread, same thing. So they are all about a a correspondence of ecological needs, mainly soil needs that determine a pattern of eating and a diet. And the trick for us in where you're sitting in New York City um, and everyone in this Northeastern Hudson Valley region is to create a pattern of eating, a, a diet, cuisine, which is my responsibility, creating a cuisine that is repeatable and enforces us to not just eat what we covet, but to eat the entirety of the landscape. So that's really the lesson and, and the challenge of, of Blue Hill and the kind of challenge of my cooking. I'm going to ask a selfish question now because you talked about when I first learned the word cover crop, this is years ago. I, I said farmer's markets, but I get most of my food actually from CSA. And the CSA has every year, it's actually one of the highlights of my, of my summer is going up to visit the farm. And I believe that they do what you talk about. I started like in the fall, we start getting all these, you no, know, I remember getting like tons of daikon radishes and they're like, these are cover crop. And it's, I started learning something about, I don't know it that well, but something about the nitrogen cycle and how it gets fixed. And um, yeah, daikon radishes are famous because of compaction. Daikons and, and radishes, daikon radishes in particular are, are for aerating soil. So part of the nitrogen, so part of the carbon and nitrogen cycle is about the biology of soil and how it aerates and soil that is too compacted because you're running horses or big tractors on it becomes problematic for disease, fungal diseases and pest problems. And so one of the ways to alleviate that is to create root dwellers that break up soil compaction. Daikons are very famous for that, in especially in the eastern part uh, of this planet. In this area, the root vegetables act as the same kind of thing, the same kind of aeration potential. So yes, to look at that more critically than we have in the past. And by the way, there's a really good operating instruction manual, and that's cuisine around the world. 
cuisine's landscape is telling us it needs to grow. And that's what our diets need to be. So when people say the best thing to do is be, say, vegetarian, I would say it depends on where you live. If you live in the Hudson Valley and you're a vegetarian, I, you, you got problems. You got problems. You're, not, you're never going to make it. Just look outside today. That's not. Southern California, you want to be a vegetarian? Go ahead, be a vegetarian. In our area, we don't have the right or the luxury to dictate what our diet is. We have only the obligation to understand what organic farmers are telling us they need to grow. And that is such the key. It's not, and don't believe any other buzzwords besides organic. If you're truly organic, you are making negotiations as a farmer all day long. And what we need to do in our diets is support those negotiations. So it's both the necessity of good ecological functioning, but it is also, as I said, a democratic way to eat. If you're not, you simply are paying for yourself to buy just the wheat from Klaus's farm. And that is unfortunately where you get imbalance and, and people complain, why, are, why is organic expensive? Organic's expensive because we don't eat a diverse diet. If you eat a diverse diet, nothing is more productive than organic agriculture, nothing. 10 times what monocultures are. But monocultures get you a lot of one thing. If you're willing to eat the diversity, there's no question uh, that diverse agriculture is not only the best way to sustain a healthy environment, it's also the healthiest diet. I'm also hearing a lot of humility. I feel humility toward nature. Even the farm is not the, this is my reading into it. The farm is still, is the farmer has to be humble to natural processes, to the animals and the plants and the funguses that they have to figure out what works not decide what they, what is going to work. Well, you've hit on what is the, the difference between American agriculture and historical agriculture. Indigenous agriculture is really what we're talking about. Yeah. Colonialism, but even not even to bring a topic as big as colonialism to just American agriculture is based on, on a bunch of people coming over here. Who didn't know how to farm. The first settlers were the ones who didn't own farmland. They didn't know how to farm. Uh, what they got when they got here was the Garden of Eden, because you have, you have rainfall and you have virgin soil. So while it was hard in the beginning, to a certain extent, it was also just the greatest blessing in the history of the world, because we have more fertility, we have more fertility in our soil than in any place on earth. And it wasn't exhausted by 4,000 years of farming, which is what people were faced in, with in Europe. So you came here and you were living high on the hog because you just had a lot of fertility. And that's, that's the history of our agriculture. We're still living that today. Our poor diets are a reflection of the, of the tonnage that we were able to take off the land freely for so long. And we're part of, look, manifest destiny, as much as it is put pushing West as a sort of call, God's calling, it's also just about chasing virgin soil. I mean, it's just about ripping up virgin soil because virgin soil, you can grow anything in virgin soil. You have no problems and you look like the greatest farmers in the world. And you can eat off that landscape for a long time. In America, especially when you get to the Midwest, you can really eat for a long time because the amount of fertility that's left over from the ice age is, is phenomenal. And we're still living off of that. But with each generation, and as we, we only just got to California 100 years ago, I mean, we really only started Cal farming California in the 60s. So just think about how little time it's been so we got from the East Coast, east of the Mississippi, where there's rainfall and temperate climates, to the Midwest, where we plowed up the prairie, to the West Coast, where we essentially became the vegetable and bread basket to the world. That's all ended. And it's essentially ended because fertility has gone. 
And we have a whole host of problems to prop up the system in, in chemical agriculture, polluted waterways, in carbon release from our soils, et cetera, et cetera. We have a, a very broken system, but in part, you could point to it. If you had to distill it, you could distill it to, we came and got drunk on a landscape that was very rich in fertility and something that no Europeans had ever seen. And so we are living off of what is essentially uh, a lack of food culture because we are never forced into creating a food culture. All these other, if you look to Europe, you look to Asia, you look to the global South, you look everywhere in between, everyone was forced into the negotiations of what did you have to rotate to get this crop? And to get the next crop, what did you have to rotate it? All of that equaled uh, a pattern of eating. And that's where cuisine developed and culture develops out of that too. Those are all response to the uh, regional plate. What does this place tell you it needs to grow, wants to grow, needs to grow? And how can we as a people bend our diets to support that landscape. That's the history and that's the distilled history of the way the indigenous communities all over the world did that more brilliantly than anybody. And America is just an ex- a really good example of what happens when you don't honor sense of place. And unfortunately today, we still, we're still talking about how do we fix the American diet? It's crazy. Look at our, look at America. Look how big America is. When you go to Italy, you have 20 different, uh, styles of rice for risotto in each town because each soil type is different. And so you're growing a different type of rice. You go up north, there's 50 different varieties of radicchio based on, on the town's culture and the history and the, the, sun, the, the lack of sunshine on the mountaintop. It's just, it's so controlled by the micro region. Italy fits inside of New York. We are in a huge geographical area and an enormous differences in environment and, and possibility soil types. Uh, and what we should have in the United States is hundreds, thousands of different cuisines and patterns of eating that are all respectful of a micro region, which is where you live. And that's why getting to know the nature around you is so important. And that's true for you sitting in the West Village too. It's, you just said you signed up for a CSA. To me, that's the greatest first step because a CSA doesn't allow you to choose. It doesn't allow you to use the farmland as yeah. a supermarket. You have to, you are given what the farm is producing. And that's a very, I think that's a very good first step. And by the way, just to give a nod to restaurants, the future of restaurants is really a, becoming much more about what can, if you were to travel to a restaurant, what you want today is something you can't get anywhere else. When I was starting right around the corner from where you live, when we opened up Blue Hill, you had to have uh, steak and uh, lobster uh, and, and caviar. Had, there was a certain set of ingredients I had to have on the menu. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been considered a serious restaurant. Today, I don't think there's anything more anachronistic than that. If you're a modern chef that's that's thriving and considered on top of his or her game, you're doing the exact opposite. That's in 20 years. You are actually putting on the menu things that you that one that other chefs can't get in other regions. And that's what makes you distinctive and that's what makes you different. It also makes you more responsive to the natural ecosystems that are a part of your world. And to me, that's a very exciting way to think about the future of our diets, but also of restaurants who more and more take the lead, the cultural lead uh, in the way that our grandma, our grandparents used to do, <laughs> but that now chefs play a role in. So I'm, you ask me what I do in some ways, 
it's orchestrate. I'm, I'm like a conductor in an orchestra and you're trying to balance not music, but ingredients so that the landscape thrives and it produces something beautiful. That's a very, I think that's a, that's the right analogy. I'm hearing a ton and I, there's a couple of things. So I started the, the CSA a few years ago and you, that forcing on me is such a blessing because I will not let any of it go to waste. So I have to figure out what to do with these things. And it didn't occur to me that what's driving it, I've picked up on it a bit because when we visit, they talk about why they do this here and why they do that there. And, but man, there's a couple of things. One, I love when people come over and I hand them a carrot and every time they say, I remember that flavor from when I was a kid and they don't have it. But I also want to comment on when I'm hearing, if I don't listen to the words and I just listen to the tone, I hear you sound almost exasperated or even angry. But if I listen at the very end, you said excited. And I, I feel like you're, it, I could think you're criticizing the way things are. And I think maybe that there's a, a, a bunch of that, but I think you're also envisioning a future that you're helping create or that you're living or that something I, I'm hearing glory. I'm hearing it's definitely excitement because you said it visionary uh, that you want to bring people along. Well, uh, yeah, but I, you know, I think what I'm describing is delicious. So it's exciting. You know? And that's why I, I really believe that the, the future of truly good agriculture and good eating is rooted in deliciousness because that's, because look, if you're supporting a landscape uh, that's healthy, you're going to get very delicious food. You get a lot of diversity too. But the diversity is where all the flavors are. And that's very exciting. So that's what chefs tend to cling to. So one could look outside their window today and at the world's problems, environmental and otherwise, and not be very hopeful. But I, in the world of food, I'm pretty hopeful because I don't think riding high on the hog, as it were, the way we've been eating is sustainable. It's not. We just don't have the carrying capacity for that anymore, forgetting about global climate change. So I'm, I think we're going to be forced into what many of our ancestors were forced into for their lives and their parents' lives and their parents' parents' lives, which is about negotiating the landscape with a lot more sensitivity than we have been. When you say forced into, the phrase that has been very useful for me in life is, is constraints breed creativity. And so when you say forced, I feel like that's a positive. I read that to me as a positive thing because we definitely can. People have been around for a lot longer than hundreds of thousands of years. And there's, so it's not like it's impossible. And on the contrary, probably we evolved to really love what we're forced into. Yeah. I don't think that 50,000 years ago, that would be pre-agriculture, but I don't think that people were like, I think- when I challenged myself to go without packaged food, this is like eight, nine years ago, I thought, I live in New York City. There's the best restaurants in the world, or I don't know, maybe not all the best, but like great restaurants, people who know a lot more about food than I do. I'm going to give all that up. That's terrible. And a sacrifice, I thought. And I'm on my path of, of discovering these things. And it's the joyful path. And it's, it's much more about connection and community and joy. Delicious. Yeah. Delicious is yeah. probably the big thing too. That was my first word that I would use to describe how my life had changed. Yeah. 
Yeah, listen, that can be intoxicating. It's a lot better than telling you about what not what to avoid and what we should be doing. And I, I, I really believe we're rooted in hedonism. That's one of the things Americans do real well, hedonism. We're willing to pay more for something that gives us pleasure. That's nice. That's hopeful. You know, so we can talk all we want about the American, the abysmal American food culture. But one thing Americans are good at is hedonism. And if we make food really taste delicious, and one way to do that is be more responsive to the environment in which it's grown, then we have a shot at creating something actually very exciting. And I think you look at the younger generation today, generation, not well, millennials, but generation Z or whatever, Jesus, these kids, they want to know everything about where their food comes from. That's amazing. And to me, very inspired. So there's a lot to be hopeful about when it comes to food. What's your view on the Green Revolution? If I'm not too far afield. It's not far afield at all. And the Green Revolution is rooted in everything we're talking about. It allowed us to, to indulge in diets where we concentrated on single crops, corn and wheat, principally, and rice. Those, were, those are the big beneficiaries of the Green Revolution. And unfortunately, we were able to do that for a certain period of time, 50 years as it were. But that's a blip in a biological scale. And now we're seeing the effects of that both on our environments, the health of our environments, and the health of ourselves. So it's, the Green Revolution saved a lot of lives, that's for sure. It saved a lot of starvation. But it created a, a system of agriculture that is not sustainable. And so we need to rethink with modern technology. I'm not anti-technology uh, and I'm not trying to go back to some kind of imagined past. What I'm trying to do is, is respect, as I said, indigenous understandings of place uh, and use that understanding, use that kind of wisdom, but incorporate modern technology, incorporate tools that allow those landscapes to be utilized in ways that are able to be delicious for the communities that surround them, but also allow them to be more healthy than they were when we found them. And to me, uh, that's the, the greatest challenge when we eat. What can we eat? How can we think about our meals in ways that improve the environment around us, not make it less bad, but improve the environment around us. That's how I, that's my greatest joy in eating. Every morning I eat oats. I just love the idea that I'm eating a, a regenerative crop that breaks up disease cycles, that gives good soil structure to other crops, that is really abundant for farmers and really healthy and tasty. That's a, just a, that's like an awesome feeling. And, and when I drink milk, I drink or yogurt or cheese, I, it's only grass fed. Because I think about an herbivore that is, that is being fed by the sun's energy that feeds the grass, feeds the herbivore. The herbivore has this unbelievable four chambers in her stomach that is able to convert grass into fiber, fat, energy, and deliciousness, and be a very nice carbon sequestration machine, more so than trees, if we do it right, if we graze them correctly. And so I take a swig of the milk or a teaspoon, a tablespoon of the cheese or yogurt, and I just couldn't be happier uh, that, that it's so delicious, but it's also improving the ecological functioning of the world around me. That's just the, the very nice way to, to think about breakfast. Do you, first of all, I, I steal cut oats as like my go-to and 
the big thing was that I realized I don't have to cook them. I can just soak them overnight and then it's no totally. effort. It's totally and the best. I have to invite you. When we talked before not recording, uh, you invited me up to Stone Hill and I, and I haven't gotten up there yet, but if I haven't invited you over for my famous no packaging vegan stews is vegan. Sorry, <laughs> but that's all right. I would that's love right. to get Go your thoughts it. on it. All right. I'd love to come, man. I'm all into vegetables. So Totally. I just think if you're one of those people who are espousing vegan for the Hudson Valley, you're just not listening to the landscape. This landscape, there's a reason cows sculpted the Hudson Valley and sheep. And it's because you can't grow vegetables year round here and it doesn't work. And actually grazing animals is what the land is telling you it wants you to do. So I'm not suggesting that you should be eating meat three times a day, seven days a week. I'm only suggesting that we should think really carefully about how we utilize animals on a landscape. Vegetables in this part of the world is actually a very expensive crop. Fertility speaking, it really is hard to grow here. And from a cultural perspective, to grow vegetables year-round is, is very difficult to do. It takes a lot of inputs, whether they're organic or not. And that's an expensive meal. I love vegetables, but I also think about them in terms of a bank, a soil bank account. And they're not adding anything to the bank account. You are making a big withdrawal every time you eat. Huge withdrawal when you eat a tomato mm-hmm. and less of a draw, withdrawal when you eat a kohlrabi, but you're still making a withdrawal. When you eat meat, pastured meat, whether you're drinking milk from grass-fed cows or grass-fed meat, or you're eating, like I said, a grass-based, grass-based, um, grass-fed lamb, you are eating an animal that is helping to improve an ecosystem. As long as the farm that it's grown, as long as it's true that it's 100% grass, that is something that is, I think, very defensible to eat. Anyway, I'm excited to try your vegetable stew. Come and visit us at Blue Hill. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. It's very um, 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 nice to know that there are people out there thinking about these ideas. I'm reading that you have to run the second, although I have- I got, I got a minute. Yeah, go ahead. I guess I was thinking of, you're talking about agriculture, and I've also been learning a lot more about pre-agriculture, not pre-agriculture, but hunting gathering, the Hadza in Tanzania or the San Bushman in Southern Africa. And- I'm not, I have no problem with people eating meat. It's a matter of taste for me. And I would like to learn more about to what extent I'm making withdrawals and not deposits. But when I see them, I think that I'm extremely pro for cultures to live as far as we know, there's no history of it that we can really tell, but for 50,000 years, 100, 200,000 years is that's sustainable. And, but we'll have to leave that for another conversation, I guess. I'd love it. I'd love it. Yeah. Let's talk more. Good luck with your pursuits uh, and your vegetable stews and look forward to having a blue hill. Dan Barber. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future step-by-step this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.